This is not an afterthought. It's a before thoughts. <laughs> it's a before thoughts afterthought. We we rarely come to these shows with any forethought <laughs> at all right. until today, gonna, where we have some forethoughts. It's kind of precognitive, right? It's precognitive. That's what this is. This is a psychic moment in the show. It is. No, it's it not. It's, we are here it's to afterthoughts. In- We're- <laughs> we are. We have an epic uh, members only episode for you today to listen to, and it's kind of ties into where we've been over the last couple of weeks. You wanna you wanna set us up? Yeah. Yeah, let me say more about that. The um, uh, First of all, Samson Youngway just stands out to me as an extraordinary human being. I mean, imagine that between ages roughly, say, 24 and 30, um, having the intelligence and the leadership qualities to make a serious impact on one of the thorniest, most difficult issues in all of American governance and culture. That's extraordinary to me. Truly. And I had to think that folks listening to this might be wondering, like I would be, what kind of parents create a kid, basically, who as a as a young man can do this? I mean, right? And it yeah, turns it's out funny. we've it's got actually, an answer. It's really funny. We totally have an answer. I you told me that you said that a few minutes ago and as we were kind of chatting about the show, and I thought, I I don't think I've ever asked myself that question until this experience about anybody yeah. like right. i've never thought that about you and i even know your parents like i just i've never <laughs> thought about huh i wonder what kind of parents raise that kid unless he's a terrible kid if it's a terrible right. kid i always think that but so yep that's you this might is really that. that this is really positive this is an amazing story in fact Yes, this is an amazing story. He's, he's an amazing young man. From all I hear, his brother is a yet an amazing young man. Um, and uh, I know his mother to be an absolutely amazing woman. But this particular episode is going to focus on his father. And Kratos Inyangwe is a Tanzanian man uh, born in Dar es Salaam um, who um, came to be part of my family, interestingly, long before I was born. And uh, along the way, um, you'll hear in this story um, that that two of the important figures in his life turn out to be my parents. Um, but it's a life of that's truly epic. I mean, really a fascinating man who, like his son, shows extraordinary intelligence early on, uh, shows extraordinary leadership uh, throughout his life. Um, and a kind of generosity of spirit that I think his son has inherited that is willing to make a change in other people's lives um, that that matters. It's really beautiful. And there are some there are some incredible moments uh, that that he highlights and he highlights them in such an extraordinarily understated way. Yeah. It's like forehead slappingly understated. Like, do you have right. any idea how important what you are saying is to the, the trajectory of your life and your career and the ripples that you have made as a result of that act uh, that, yeah. that I really hope people pick up? Yes, there's I mean, one of them that, that I want folks to listen for is there's there's a moment in his childhood, a particularly desperate, frightened, lonely uh almost, you know, other, otherwise tragic time in his life um, where th- 
through a single act of generosity that I think very few humans would be capable of and that Credo is totally capable of, if you know him. He's just this way, such a kind of uh, a warm and generous and loving spirit about him. And he's been that way from the time he was a kid, from what I hear from my parents, and certainly that way from the time he was a young adult and I was a kid. Uh, all the years I've known him, he's always been this way. But there's this moment in his childhood where he does something that I don't think he even gave another thought to. In fact, I don't think he's really given much of another thought to it all his life until he and I started talking about it. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, think about that. What you just did there, Credo. And it sounds like everything that followed from there um, was like life giving back to him for that moment of unusual kindness. Yeah. Yeah. It's really stunning. And especially when you hear just where he was in his life when that happened, I, ah, I I hope many of you have the benefit of saying not like I did. I don't think I would have been capable of doing that at that point in his life. I certainly don't think my kids are capable of it. What am I doing? Where have I gone wrong? (laughs) Until now. (laughs) Yeah. I, it's extraordinary. I, you haven't you haven't gone wrong at all. He's just an amazing, amazing human, and we can all be inspired by yeah, it. But we true. don't have to be shamed by it, right? He's aspirational. Um, yeah, there's a full circleness to his life that's really interesting that he also understates. And I think probably you know if I had if as a better interviewer, I might have brought it out better. But I I think I can at least have, help people watch for it now that the way in which he was giving to his own family in buying produce and bringing it back to them um, ultimately turns into a chunk of his career many years later where he's doing the same thing, uh, uh, buying produce and, and selling it to, to Westerners and to, you know, hotel patrons um, turns into a multi-million dollar business. Like he does, he does really, really well for himself um, in that way. Uh, and there's something so beautiful about how he had that instinct from the time he was a little kid and um and here it comes back it's pretty special it's pretty special yeah it's also very much a story of um of synchronicity and grace in one's life i mean so if if our podcast is all about sort of change the elements of change that are hardest to understand right it's it's not just his IQ or his leadership abilities or his will. Something else happens here. His generosity comes back to him in extraordinary ways, for example. But another one is there are just some amazing synchronicities in his life um, where some unseen force is really helping this guy out. And that's a beautiful part of his story. And, you know, the interview is is quite long. Like, I didn't have the heart to cut him off. I didn't want to hurry him Mm -hmm. up. I didn't want him to talk and, you know, more efficiently about any parts of these stories. And I thought maybe we'd edit it down. We didn't have the heart to do that either. There's just too much about it. That's beautiful. And you know what sealed it for us? We did. We left it nice and long. It's because, and I can't remember if this actually got into the recording. So I'll just say it here. When we first turned on the mic and we were getting set up, um, and and Kratos sits down at the at the computer and his face comes on screen. It's just delightful. And he says, This is the first time I have ever recorded anything about my life for anyone. I've never done yeah. this. And that sealed it. Like, how do you how do you edit the first time 
anybody's ever done this when we have <laughs> when we have the luxury and the opportunity to just give it all out um I, yeah i i don't know how we would do that so yes yep and the interview easily could have gone on another hour if we'd gone way into his adulthood also yeah. um in my particular case, I was uh, hopelessly late for an appointment. I think my bladder <laughs> is about to burst. And uh, so I, I helped us hurry back through just a few principles at the very end. Um, sort of like I had to kind of summarize a few things because um, we could have been there easily all day. And yeah. I would have loved it. I would have yeah. loved to have been there all day. Um, so I I hope everyone enjoys Credo as much as I do. And my family has long, long love, love, loved him. Just such a a wonderful man. So take your time. Remember, you it's a podcast. You can pause it. You don't have to listen to the whole thing at once. Digest it. Learn from this beautiful guy. And um, thanks, for, thanks for showing up. Thanks for doing the work. We really, truly appreciate you. Here you go. Dodging Kratos in Yangwei. Kredo, welcome to our show. So glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you. We've known a each other a long time, which we'll get to at some other point. But your story is such a remarkable story of change, your lifetime story of just incredible sequence of events, that I thought it would just make a, a wonderful example of how change sometimes visits one's life, how we interact with it in skillful, beautiful ways, and uh, what we might learn from that as we go. So I really appreciate your coming to talk about your lifetime, which is among the most fascinating I can think of. Uh, you're welcome. Let's start with your upbringing in Tanzania. You were raised in Dar es Salaam? Yes, uh, most of my upbringing was in Dar es Salaam. I was born in Ujiji, which is by Lake Tanganyika. But we moved to Dar es Salaam in the early 50s when I was uh, five, six, and lived in a one small room uh, house with the entire family uh, in Dar es Salaam. It, it was memorable to some extent uh, because I, I remember my older brother. Uh, one day he said, let's go to Simbazi Primary School. Let's go and register. We were two little boys. He was two years older than I was. This is 1956. So we walked to Simbazi, which is about, um, let's see, about three miles from where we were. And somehow we, got, we registered into primary school. That's how we started. Life was hard because uh, my father had a job, but the job paid him about, at the time, about $40 a month. And we were uh, six of us, so there wasn't really enough to go around. But we survived somehow. Meanwhile, uh, to subsidize for meals and so on, we took some little jobs here and, here and there. I remember uh, taking a job of polishing carvings carvings, you, you go early in the morning because many kids were struggling as we were. So you have to be there around six o'clock. You are given less than 20, 30 carvings. You have to polish them and then paint them. Then at the end of the day, you get an equivalent of about one or two dollars after a whole day's work. But with that, then you could buy uh, beans and the flour and bring home and you could eat that day. 
that was an early part of our life. And then, uh, and without that, you couldn't eat that day many days. Many days you couldn't. Yeah, you couldn't. In other words, you'd wake up in the morning and uh, wander around the kitchen. You see nothing. And at times at the end of the day, you wander around the kitchen, there is nothing. So all you've had all day is water. There was no food. And the next day could be the same. So you have no way of knowing whether there'll be food the following day. So you get used to that. Uh, by the time I was eight, I, uh, one day I went to the market, Carrier uh, Coal Market, which was the major market in the city, and just picked little oranges here and there, the ones which were discarded. Uh, so I'll uh, gather uh, 50 of them or 100 of them, bring them to my neighborhood and, uh, and sell them. So that's how I raised the first capital. Uh, with about uh, a dollar, would buy uh, cassava or other fruits or maize and roast them. And, and that way I would be making money so we could all eat. And I kept doing that while also going to school. But going to school had its own uh, problems because there were times when we'd be sent home because we didn't have school fees. And when I talk of school fees, it's about $2 a year. So we wouldn't have that. But we had one advantage. We were uh, among the smartest kids in class. So whenever we were not in class, the teacher would be bored and say, come on, you go and tell Cradle to come back or tell Nemesis, my brother, to come back. So that would, you would, uh, would cheer the class or make the class uh, more interesting, you know, just by uh, what we could say or answer questions. We were really, really bright then. I mean, now I'm not, I'm not at all bright. <laughs> it seems to all have evaporated. <laughs> I don't believe you, Credo. <laughs> I'm telling you. So... <laughs> I remember once uh, Princess Margaret was visiting Tanzania. This is in the early, let's see, in the late 50s. Yeah, in the late 50s. And uh, my brother played uh, the main drum and I played the small drum, you know, like school drums, you know what I mean? We mm -hmm. were part of the school band. Mm -hmm. We never had uniforms because we, we never could afford to, to, to buy uniforms. So for that day, we were, uh, they lent us a uniform because we were, uh, going to receive Princess Margaret. We are part of the, the lineup. Maybe a welcoming committee. Yeah. The welcoming committee, the lineup. So we'd play the drum. So for the first time, I wore school uniforms. You know, so you can imagine. On normal days, I'd go with a torn shirt or torn pale pants. But on that day, I would have a shirt on. I mean, a uniform, a clean shirt. And uh, so I wore that for a few days and then said, no, you have to return it unless you buy it. And we couldn't buy it, so we returned it. Anyway, that was primary school. Life went on and, uh, you know, we, we survived, uh, uh, all of us. And uh, by the time I finished uh, the fourth grade equivalent uh, to, to here, uh, you have to transition to a middle school, which is fifth grade to eighth grade. And, and I understand you, you're still walking three miles each way every yes. day to school and working yes. w without which you couldn't eat. Yes, yes, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, say at the end of the month, our father would, uh, would bring in uh, a piece of meat and some flour and sugar, which will last only a few days. 
And after that, then it is back to normal struggle. So fortunately, when uh, my brother finished the fourth grade, he was uh, selected to go to the seminary, which was about 45 miles away from uh, where we lived, Dar es Salaam. It is in another town called Bagamoyo. And that was great news for him because he was going to a boarding school. So that means he would have everything taken care of. He had meals and uh, he wouldn't have to walk so far and uh, he would have uniform. So he was excited, so he went. The following, the following year, uh, I also was selected to go to seminary. Now, why was that? It's because um, generally, uh, this being a Catholic school, they dedicated the smartest kids uh, to the seminary to become priests. So if you are the smartest class, they would tend to volunteer you to go to the seminary. And you would be happy because you're going to a boarding school where everything is taken care of. The following year, I went to the same seminary in Bagamoyo for the fifth grade. And uh, after a year, uh, I was called in by the headmaster and he would say, you know, you've been here for a whole year and you, you haven't paid any school fees or uh, uniform. Uh, we were required to pay some, I mean, not much, unless you have a benefactor, which my brother had. He found, uh, they found him a benefactor from Holland who would take care of all his expenses at that middle school. So at that visit, the headmaster told me that, um, well, because one, you ask a lot of questions, uh, especially why this, why that, uh, and two, we haven't been able to find your benefactor yet, so we had to tell you that uh, we, you will not be able to come back. So this was around Christmas time, so when we went back for once a year vacation, I couldn't go back but my brother continued. So then, actually for the first time I saw my father was very concerned about my education because he knew I was bright and he knew I was doing very well at school, although he couldn't afford to pay school fees or buy uniforms for me. So he went and saw a cousin of his who was also a priest from another region, from uh, Sumbawanga. He had visited Dar es Salaam at the time. So he went and spoke with him and through him, he found me uh, a place in a Catholic uh, middle school in Morogoro, another town, uh, to start uh, uh, standard sixth, because I just finished the fifth grade. So to start sixth grade, as you call it, here, there they call standard, here you call grade, it's, it's similar. So then I went to Bigwa Middle School. Uh, to start the sixth grade. And I was there for a year. They required that we pay, again, about $2 a year for uniforms and school fees. And they told me at the end of the sixth grade that uh, when you go on vacation, you better come back with school fees and uh, uh, money for uniforms. Uh, otherwise, we will not accept you back. During Christmas, I asked my dad, you know, they told me if you don't give me money for school fees and uniforms, they won't accept me back. So my dad was kind of ticked off. He said, where do you think I'm going to get the money? I don't have that kind of money. Again, we are talking in terms of our $2, you know, $3, $4, you know, it's not a lot of money. I remember when you're making about $40 a month for all the expenses, including rent and so on, he kind of didn't think that was that important. 
So he cut it out. So seeing that I didn't have the money, I didn't go back to that school. So officially, that was the end of my schooling, end of the sixth grade. So what happened then? Then I started thinking of how we, we could continue to eat and survive. So I got interested in fishing. I started fishing. So I would walk from where we lived all the way to the sea, which was about probably about four or five miles, and start fishing, catch fish. And uh, on my way back, I would sell some uh, on the way, you know, like, go fish, fish, fish. You know, like I would say, a red snapper, red snapper, you know, like a real merchant, you know, walking around in a bag, you know, in my bag saying, fish, 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 fish. You're and, a sixth uh, grader. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, just finished, just finished sixth grade. So people would come out of their houses, and this was mainly Indian, Indian area of the city, because the way Dar es Salaam was organized is that near the sea, you have the Europeans or the expatriates. And then as you go farther away, you have the Indians. And farther still, then you'd have the Africans. So it was segregated in that sense. And those who really, really made a lot of money or where government officials, then they'll start moving into the Indian area or the European area, you know, but very, very few Africans would live in those areas. So as I was walking from the European area, I wouldn't sell any fish there. You know, it's like a different standard. I wouldn't see this uh, ramshackle little boy walking around, fish, 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 fish. Tattered clothes and probably no shoes. Yeah, No shoes, no shoes, definitely no shoes. Uh, That would call you and buy fish from you. So by the time you reach the Indian area, you know, they are less less selective in that sense. So they'll call me, yeah, come over here. So I would stop and they'll select and they'll buy a few. And of course, I'll be making the price as you go. Uh, how much is that fish? I would say, so much. How much? So, so then they would pay me. Then I'll continue walking until I reach home. Then, of course, I'll give my mother that money. Uh, or one of my brothers will go and buy flour or beans. Or, or, so we'd have uh, the staple of Tanzania, which is ugali and beans. Uh, ugali is a, is a porridge, a hard porridge made from uh, uh, maize flour. And uh, of course, beans with uh, some sauce with, mixed in with tomatoes or tomato sort, you know, very, very basic uh, kind of cuisine, local cuisine. So <laughs> then we'll eat. The next day, I'll do the same. So this brings me up to one day in 1961. I'm fishing regularly, you know, very friendly with everybody. Then I see this little... Uh, uh, European boy. He looked British because at the time, Tanzania was still a British colony. This was before independence, 19, 1961. And the place was the, a pier uh, right below St. Joseph's uh, Catholic Church, uh, the famous church in, in, in Tanzania. And you go down to the pier, and from the pier you can uh, then uh, board a boat if you want to go to Zanzibar and so on. That's where you would board the boat. In those days, there were not so many boats. So we'd fish there because, you know, people would throw some leftovers and fish would go. There were a lot of fish in that area. So here I'm fishing, and suddenly I see this uh, young, young European kid being chaperoned by a guy all dressed in white, very clean cut. So in my mind, I think maybe this is the governor's son. 
or somebody important within the, the British expatriate community. So I'm just carrying on with my business. I catch fish. I put them away. Starting with this kid, little kid, you know, he's about seven, eight years old. He kicks me. He kicks me and says, you're catching all the fish. <laughs> so I, I look at him and I, I smile because, no, there were a lot of fish down there. I was only catching one at a time. But he wasn't catching any because he was trying, he was trying to catch fish too. He came, he came strictly to fish. He had his, uh, you know, beautiful fishing line and uh, all these prawns and fancy hooks. And he kept uh, throwing them to catch a fish. He wouldn't catch any. So because I was catching a lot, he was getting jealous or frustrated with me. Like I was catching all and he was not catching any. So when he kicked me, I laughed and uh, I, I, I looked at him and said, come on, sh- show me, show me, your, your, show me your hook, pull your line. So he pulled his line and I looked at his uh, hooks. They were very big hooks. And the fish, most of the fish down there were zebra fish with very small mouths. So they would come and uh, just knock off a whole prone, a whole shrimp that he had put uh, on his big hook. And none would be caught because all they'd do is uh, just knock the prone off. They would have a party down there, you know. They'd, they'd be enjoying the uh, the prone. So I said, "Okay, come on, let's do this." So I pulled his line and uh, and then I I cut his hook. I took one of my spare hooks. I had very few spare hooks because I couldn't really afford a lot of spare hooks. So I put one of my little hooks, and then. Uh, Instead of putting a whole prawn as uh, you would do, I just cut a little piece of it and put on this little little hook. I said, okay, try now. So he, he tried and he caught a fish. This was like a miraculous moment for this kid. He was so excited. Kratos, so generous of you. So, so <laughs> you have very few spare hooks and very little at all, I mean, to your worldly possessions. And you, you give this well-to-do, chaperoned, dressed-in-white European child one of your very few spare hooks and help him yes, after he's kicked you. Yes, yes. Because wow. I, I, I looked at him like my little brother, you know, like <laughs> my little brother gets frustrated because uh, maybe I have the wherewithal. I knew how to do it and he didn't. You know? right. So I say, okay, I'll show him how to. So I showed him how to fish. So he threw, uh, he threw his line, he caught a fish, and you wouldn't believe by it. He ran about 400 yards and shouting with joy, I caught a fish, I caught a fish, I caught a fish. Probably the first everybody of his was life. Looking at, yeah, everybody was looking at him and like, what's, what's going on with this kid? Is he crazy or stuff? No, he was so joyous, so, so happy. Mm. So he came back and he asked me, okay, again, again, show me again. So I showed him, uh, he tried again, he caught another fish. And to make a long story short, at the end of that uh, day, which was in uh, late evening, I'm talking now about 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock, uh, 1961, the kid says, come with me, come with me. And uh, I thought it was hilarious. He wants me to go with him home to where he lived. Come with me. So the kid took control of my life at that point and took, it, took me to his home. Little did I know that uh, he lived in a hotel, the best hotel at the time, called Trigo Hotel in Dar es Salaam. His father was the general manager of the hotel, and his mother was the executive housekeeper of the hotel. So they ran the hotel. 
So he took me and said, come, I want you to meet my parents. He took me, introduced me to his parents, very British colonial, uh, looked at this shabby kid, you know, from nowhere, from the street. And so they, they were respectful to their son uh, that they said, hello, hello. And uh, then they left. And the kid, I think uh, now I can tell that he probably had a very close relationship with his mother, but not so much with his father. He was very much on his own kid, you know, the kind of kid who, you know, has his own life, you know what I mean? Even at that young age. So he said, come with me. So we went down to the kitchen. Let's go to the kitchen, he tells me. So, you know, we run down, like little kids, we run down to the kitchen. He called the chef, 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 he has command. The kid has command. Most of the chefs there, the cooks were African. Chef, chef, make two shrimp curries, one for me and one for my friend. Two shrimp curries. Mm. So, you know, every while they make two shrimp curries, they bring. I didn't even know what shrimp curry was. Mm. I didn't know what this European or sophisticated food was. I never had it in my life. Mm-hmm. But for the first time, I tasted something which was professionally prepared by recipe, by professional wow. chefs. And it was delicious. I still remember it. Must have blown your mind. It blew my mind. So we ate. And then he said, come, come to my room. So went to his room. He showed me his room. And then he said, tomorrow, uh, come here, he tells me. Uh, one o'clock. Because he, he went to the, the international school. He was still going to school while I was not. So school ends at about noon. So he figured by one o'clock, we, could, we should be ready to go fishing. That's why he wanted me to, to, to come to the hotel at one o'clock so that the two of us would go fishing. How are you communicating at this point, Credo? Like, I can't imagine you've learned much English by 11 years old. No, no, no. But uh, I, could, I could understand what he's saying. For example, you would make him very sick. Tomorrow... Come here, here. There you go. Sure. One o'clock. Okay, one o'clock. <laughs> I say yes, 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 yes. <laughs> one o'clock. One o'clock. <laughs> you know, right. language simplified. You know, very simplified yeah. with a lot of gestures and so on. You know, yeah. So, so the next day I was there at one o'clock because for me it was uh, you know I mean this new environment I mean a new bubble another world you know like suddenly the gap between this rich boy who is European, you know, like very high in status, and this poor boy, and nobody, a very poor kid from the, you know, the slums, are friends. Friends. And the link was the fish, the fishing. Yeah, the fact that I could, I, I could, uh, I could partake with him, you know, I, I could share with him. I could understand him and uh, appreciate, you know? That changed everything. Credo, what was his name again? Alistair. Alistair mm. Ewan Sinder Shaw. Alistair Ewan Sinder Shaw. And at the time, I told him what my name was. I told him, my name is Credo Sinyangu. So being seven, eight years old, he didn't understand that Credo mm-hmm. Sinyangu is a strange name, you know? And of course, by then I was talking very much in Swahili, uh, uh, Swahili uh, sure. accent, you know? It was Swahili. So he said, No, mm. you are John. He said, No, your name is John. 
said, okay, you know, <laughs> laughing, you know, like, you know, like uh, for me, you call me John, you call me yeah. whatever, that's fine. It didn't matter to me. Yeah. So I, in other words, I didn't argue with him. Like, no, my name is Kramer Yangwe. No. I said, okay, okay. So from then on, on was, he called me John. And for two years, wonderful yeah. friends. For two years. For two wow. years, we were friends every day. The, the kid would want to do anything with nobody. All he wanted is to be with me, go fishing. <laughs> oh. And what he would do when we meet, he would bring in a sandwich. So for the first time, I tasted a sandwich with uh, lettuce and uh, ham and different sandwiches he would bring. One for him and one for me every day. And uh, so during those two years, you know, uh, I spoke with him every day. Of course, I practiced my English with him. So my English was really good uh, uh, after a while. And uh, he took me to my first movie. You see, Trigo Hotel was next to Avalon Cinema. And they knew him as a kid of the general manager of the hotel. So he would come in and walk in free. You wouldn't even have to have a ticket. So one evening he said, come on, let's go and see Guns of Navarone. So we, we just went and we walked in. They didn't even ask me a question. Ask me a question. He said, my friend, my friend. So we walked in and saw Guns of Navarone. So that was my first movie. So you say, though, so best, best friends, two years, and, and then what? Well, what happened is that, for example, he saw I didn't have clothes. So you give me clothes, you give me shoes, whatever, you know. So I would wear his shirt or his pants, whatever, you know, which fit me. He, he was, always, although he was very young, uh, he was big, you know, nutrition matters, right? You know, I was small by size, although I was uh, four or five years older than him, which also explains why I could understand him because I was much older and he was much younger. So for me, he was like my young brother. That's the way I, 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 I understood the whole relationship uh, so anyway so one day i go back and uh, you know one o'clock usually as usual and when i arrived there i look for him he's not there so i ask people where is alistair so oh, they left yesterday i said oh my god where did they go they went back to england i said gosh you didn't even tell me so it was a very sad moment for me because suddenly everything changed like that chapter, heartbreak, that chapter of my life was closed. Anyway, so I didn't, I didn't even know where, 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 uh, where he went to. But later, later on, I, 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 I relate how, how I found out. But in any case, he was gone. So I continued fishing and uh, uh, catch fish, do the, back to the old routine. You know, catch some fish and then sell the fish, go home with it, no schooling. And then interesting thing happened. One day when I came home, my mom said, an old friend of yours from uh, uh, first to fourth grade, your classmate came over here and was asking for you. I said, who was it? He said, uh, Joseph Capeleula. His name was Joseph Capeleula. I remembered him because he used, to be, he used to sit next to me in class from first to fourth grade. So I was wondering what happened to me. He was still going to middle school. He was still going to middle. He continued because his father could afford the school fees. He had a better job. 
And uh, he, but he always remember the cradle was the smartest kid in class. So he wanted, to, he was curious what happened to me. And interesting, his name was Joseph. That's my father's name, Joseph. So here, a Joseph comes to ask my mother, where's Credo? And my mother tells him the whole story. Oh, Credo has been fishing. Uh, and Joseph is surprised. Credo is fishing? He's not going to school? No, he's not going to school. Say, no, that's not possible. Then Joseph, again, uh, at that time he was, uh, uh, I would say about 13, 13, 14, you know, a little boy. But he took interest in my w- w- well-being. Like, how could the smartest kid in our, in our school be done with schooling? So then he told my mother, tell him I, 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 I'll come by tomorrow. I want to speak to him. So that day, I waited for him. He came. He came. He was so happy to see me. Hey, Credo, how are you? How have you been? We haven't seen each other for a long time. Then he said, uh, how come you're not going to school, man? That's, that's crazy. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, you know, that conversation. So I tell him the story, and then he said, oh, why, why don't you come, come with me to my school? Uh, I, I'll talk to the headmaster and see if he can, if he can let you in. So I, I, I said, yeah, sure, uh, I'll be happy to, uh, to continue with, with schooling. Now, there was an advantage here that this was a public school, so there's no school fees uh, and no uniform, so to speak. Uh, so the next, like on a weekend, on a Saturday, uh, he took me to the headmaster's home. And uh, he had already spoken to the headmaster about me. And uh, he begged the headmaster to give me a chance. So we went to the headmaster's home, and the headmaster said, yeah, Joseph told me about you. But you know, our school system, public school system, the headmaster doesn't have the authority to allow a student in unless the student goes through the district office. In other words, the district office uh, distributes the students to different public schools. It was it was in his decision, and as we were talking, something happened to him. Very very sudden. I'm talking to him, and then said, "What's your name?" I said, uh, "My name is Credo Joseph Sinyangwe." Said, okay. He said, "Have you been to the district office to try to find a place where you could go to school?" I said, "Yes. In fact, uh, my father took me to the district." Uh, office and they said they have no spaces anywhere. The school, all schools were full. And the headmaster said, No, I still have two spaces here. He said, Let's do this. He took this, he, he made a scene. Why don't we change your name? You are Credo Joseph Sinyangwe. Let's say you are called Sinyangwe Credo Joseph. Why did he do that? Because whenever you go to the district office, they register your name and they put you on a waiting list, so to speak. If space comes up, and if they are willing to really bother to send you to a particular school that is space, then they will do so. Otherwise, they really don't, they don't care so much. So the headmaster, having learned that I was a smart kid, and yet space, he said, yeah, I, I can enroll you right here. I know I'm not supposed to. I'll enroll you. Can you when can you start? I said, I can start on Monday. Say, come on Monday, you start. 
And then he asked me a very interesting question. What can you promise me if, if I let you be one of my students here? I say, I can promise you I'll be, one, I'll be the best student you have ever had. Just like that. Not knowing uh, what kind of kids he had. You know, you're kind of braggadocio. So he said, okay. So I started schooling. Because of the intervention of Joseph, this kid that I knew in primary school. Anyway, so I started in that semester. I came out number two of a class of 44 students. Uh, the following semester, I came out number one in uh, all, all, all subjects except geography. I kept number one. The headmaster was very happy. He was very happy. It's moving to you to talk about this credo, isn't it? It is, it is. You know, you remember the past. I can see and, and hear tears for you as, as we're communicating here over Zoom, as you talk about Alistair and, and you talk about your friend Joseph and the enormous difference they made to you at a time when there was just uh, so much need. So then, uh, so then we finished middle school. I went to... Uh, what do you call high school here? There we call uh, secondary school, uh, which was a Zenia secondary school. So it started from uh, the British call from one, from two, from three to four, which year you call first year, second year, third year, and fourth year high school, right? So it started. So in the second year, one day, uh, again, I'm just a nice guy, very friendly with people. And uh, still poor, still don't have uh, much, you know. So one kid who used to hang around, hang with me and other kids, we're always a group of kids. I was always associated with other kids, you know, chatting friendly and goofing off or playing soccer. So this kid took a liking for me. Uh, his name was uh, Ray Abdu, or Ramazani Abd Abdallah. But he used to call himself Ray Abdu. He was always very well dressed this kid. And uh, he said, Credo, uh, where do you live? So I told him where I lived. He said, I I'd like to visit you, see, see where you live and meet your family. So he came by to where, to where I lived. Again, very poor, he saw. And uh, he was very surprised that that's where I came from. He, he kind of took pity for me and said, you know what? One of these days I'll take you to an office where, you know, you can get some help. So I said, oh, what kind of help? Oh, you know, they can give you food, they can give you clothing and pocket money. I said, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So on that particular day, uh, we went together to the office. I, I think that was uh, Lutheran Social Service, Catholic Social Service, and uh, he, he, he told me, I'm not supposed to bring you here. So when we get to the office, pretend that you do not know me. You're on your own. I said, okay. So we went into the room. There is a waiting area. He, he told me that you'll go in. They'll ask you questions about your family, and they can help you depending on your story. So just tell them the truth, and uh, they'll decide if, uh, if you qualify to be hurt or not. And if you qualify, they'll help you because they've been helping me uh, since I started high school. 
So there we are waiting. So he went in first and uh, had, his, uh, had the meeting with uh, the person inside the office. At that time, I didn't even know who was in the office. But, uh, but later, I came to find out that there were two, two ladies in the office. Uh, one was called uh, Mama Lois, or Lois is uh, her name, but the kids would call her Mama Lois. And the next one was called uh, Mama Nikki, uh, who was there. The two were there. So he went in, and then he came out. But he had, when he went in, he spoke to Mama Lois. So the way it works when you go in, they, they interview the kid, uh, and then they, they take note, put note to five, note to five. So when he came out, Mama Lois was putting uh, the information on five. So I was the next one going in. When I went in, I met Mama Nikki. So I go in, and Mama Nikki, very nice, very relaxed, uh, very friendly, very caring. Uh, so she asked me my name and so on and so forth. So I told her who I was. Then she started asking me about my family, what my father did, what my mother did, how me in the family. And so, so I told her uh, who I was, what my family was, and so on. And of course, she took, she took, she took notes to file. And then the, she told me what the office does. She told me that here we have kids who are experiencing difficulty with schooling because they don't have food or they don't have clothing or pocket money. And we help them. Those who qualify, we help them. I want, I want you to do this. You wait outside, she said. Wait outside because... In, about, in a few minutes, my husband will be uh, finishing work. He works upstairs in this same building. I, I would like him to meet you too. So I went outside in the waiting room, waited, and uh, our husband came and uh, met me. And uh, by then, I believe uh, Mama Nikki had already discussed with her husband about me. And they decided that they would support me from that day onwards. Not just me, my family said, yeah, we'll, we'll support you, we'll help you out, we'll help out with, uh, with your family. So from that day onwards, my life changed completely again. That Mama Nikki and Sam would support me. You know, what does that mean? Would give me uh, money for food, for whatever we need. And it, it was enough for me to also support my family. So we would eat and uh, you know, life changed. So we wouldn't have hunger as we had before. There was enough to eat. And every Christmas, they would send us clothes. So we'll all have uh, uh, American clothes, you know, and people say, hey, where do you get those clothes? They say, well, you know, Mama Nikki sent us his clothes. Or, 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 or Mama Nikki and her husband sent us clothes. So we all dress and we started, we're very different from everybody in the area. What is your sense about why Mama Nikki and Sam took to you in such a personal way? It sounds like beyond the charity, they, they, they wanted to help your whole family themselves. Well, how, how, did, how did that come about? You know how things happen and you don't really know why they happen? And uh, for, for whatever reason, I mean, I wasn't the only kid that uh, Mama Nikki had spoken with. Uh, I mean, she had been there for a while. She, she, she found that uh, there was something 
unusual about me, or there was something about me that she, it inspired her enough or, or won her over enough or impressed her enough to say, you know, instead of you having to come to this office every week, get flour, get milk, get oil and all that stuff, no, we'll take care of you. Yeah, you, you, we, we're going to take charge. Like, you, you, you will be our responsibility. That's how, how it uh, turned out to be. As though maybe you had supported your family long enough, huh? You'd been doing it a long time. Well, even, even that wasn't uh, the issue. I think it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's like a, a mind shift that happened to, to her in that uh, meeting and later with her husband that they felt strongly about my case to say, no, we'll, we'll take care of this. We, we're going to take responsibility of you and your family from now onwards. You don't have to worry. And sure, even days when, uh, uh, say, I would have exams coming, they'll say, no, you're moving, you're going to stay with us so you don't have to worry about uh, electricity, for example, because sometimes there was no electricity at home or no water. Or, so everything was like, uh, they would take me to their bubble, so to speak, you know, where where the very well-to-do people live and the way, you know, like the expatriates live. So from a poor kid in the, in, in, in the slums to an expatriate environment, and suddenly that was really my home. Even when I, I, I wasn't living there, uh, I knew I had a home with them. Anytime I could go there and eat or sleep or do whatever. And it wasn't only that. Uh, some weekends they'll come and take the entire family, take us to the beach. You know, for the first time, I, uh, some members of my family would go to the ocean and even see the ocean. Uh, and on and on, or whatever. There was a good movie that they wanted to see. They'll, they'll take me to that movie. They took me to the first James Bond movie, <laughs> for example. <laughs> and, and later that became a tradition. Every time a James Bond movie came, we were all eager to go, you know. So they took me to my first James Bond movie. And uh, they would take me to different restaurants. They took me to my first Chinese restaurant, for example. Uh, and on and on, you know. So my life changed from that time on is because I met Mama Nikki and I met Sam. Yeah, things changed completely. So, so my life was with my family sometimes, but also with them, you know, because I had them as my family from that time onwards. It wasn't like I was a stranger. No, I felt very much at home. They both made me feel at home. I was, and, and I think what had contributed to it is Alistair, because with Alistair, already taught me, you know, like uh, some behaviorisms of how to be with people who are not, who, 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 who are not from you, say you are tribe. It didn't matter what tribe I was. It didn't matter what color I was. It didn't matter what race I was. It didn't matter how much I had. All those were neutralized. That would be the word. All those were neutralized. When I saw Nikki or when I saw Sam, it was like I was seeing Alistair, like I was seeing my own brother or my, my own sister or my own mother or my own father. It was like that. So, such a sense of family, just like your connection to Alistair. Yes, uh, completely. It was completely a uh, sense of family. But also what Sam and Nikki brought, because for them, 
I, I wasn't like that African poor kid or this. No, I was just uh, another human being. Another human being. I was just one of them. Like, like I grew up with them. It was as if we all grew up from the same house. And I always felt like that. I still do. I still do. Uh, whenever say, I visit Sam or whenever I see Nikki, it is, I still feel the same way. I still feel the same way. Even years. Many years after, it's still the same. Anyway, let's backtrack a little bit. So I'm finishing high school and uh, in the uh, British system, which is what Tanzania was using. You have to go two more years after high school. They call it A-level. I applied to different schools and then got into the best boarding, uh, best high school, uh, boarding school in Tanzania used to be a British, British high school. But by then, Tanzania had become independent, so it was uh, part of the Tanzanian public schools. So I went to Mkwawa High School, and within that period, I, was, I became chairman. I became vice chancellor of the school. I became uh, president of uh, Young Christian uh, Association. I became president of uh, Jujutsu Club. I became president of the debating society. And I also became the head boy. So for whatever reason, if there was a post, they would give it to me or they would elect me. Uh, in other words, they saw a lot of leadership in me. Why? Because, again, remember all, the guy, Ramazan Abdallah, who used to hang around with me, said, I want to see, I want to see your home. He took me to see Mama Nikki. Remember Joseph, remembering our early days, said, where's Credo? What is Credo doing? He got me back to schooling from being a fisherman, from fishing to back to schooling. So all of that development then became, came to full, to fruition when I went to uh, two years after high school in the air level at his best boarding school in Tanzania. So I became all those things. And while I was there, I brought the movies. So every Saturday, they would watch movies. I, I, I managed to uh, contract a company in Kenya that wrote me to send us movies every weekend. So we'll all enjoy this movie. Again, remember, Sam Ray who took me to see James Bonds. Alistair took me to see my first movie. So he and I are multiplying it. So everybody can enjoy movies. <laughs> so, so I'm graduating now, uh, this high school. And uh, one day I'm in the library. I picked up the newspaper and saw that Tanzania Hotels Limited, which was a British company, but uh, running all the hotels in Tanzania, in National Park, in the Serengeti and so on, they were looking to train young Tanzanians to become hotel managers. That stood out to me as I saw that. I said, wow, I would like to apply for this. Although all along, Mamaniki and Sam had figured out that I would, I would, I would be a very good psychiatrist. I, I would be good if I went to a medical school and, be, and then became a psychiatrist. To make that, to make that even happen, they took me to, to visit with the only psychiatrist we had at the time at the main hospital in Dar es Salaam. They 
arranged for an interview with him so that he would talk to me about psychiatry. But when I finished high school, all that evaporated when I saw this ad in the newspaper that particular day saying that Tanzania Hotels Limited wants to train young Tanzanians uh, to become hotel managers. That took, uh, took my breath away. Why? Because I remembered Alistair, who took me to the only hotel I had gone to early on in my life. I'm talking now 1971 versus 1961, 61, 61-62. So this is about 10 years later. I'm seeing this ad. So I applied. There were 800 students who applied for these 24 positions that were available, including my brother, who was smarter than I was. By then, he had uh, come out of the seminary. He had also left the seminary. He, he didn't want to be a priest uh, at long last. A few, a few months before, he could be a priest. He fell in love with some girls, so, you know, he, he didn't want to be a priest because you couldn't be a, you couldn't be a priest and marry. So he left the seminary at a very later stage. He applied too. And as far as I'm concerned, he was more qualified than I was. Out of the 800 people who applied, of the 24 who were chosen, I was one of them. Of the 24, my brother, my brother was, didn't even make the second round of selection. And I recall the reason I was one of their best Candidates, because remember, I spent two years with Alistair, during which I spoke English every day. I spent by then many years with Mamaniki and Sam, during which I spoke English all the time. So my English was very, very uh, developed and very sophisticated, including that I was the president of the debating society of the best debating club of all high schools in, in Tanzania. Our debating society was the best, and I was the president of that, and I was their, their protagonist. Whenever we went to other high schools to, to debate, I would be the one who would be the pro protagonist. And we were always win. <laughs> we were always win. Why? Because the best were in English. And by then, I had developed so much English, speaking especially, than any other, than probably most kids in Tanzania, because of my experience uh, with Alistair and with the Sam and Nikki. So, early 71, I started the training. By then, I was still in touch with Sam and Nikki. They had left Tanzania then. They had gone to Botswana, I believe. They had gone to Botswana. We were in touch, and, uh, uh, but I had not seen them for a while. So I started this new career in my life. And two years later, I think in late 72, eight of the 24 hotel trainees, uh, uh, Tanzanian hotel trainees in Tanzania were given scholarship to go and uh, study hotel management in India. Mind you, by then, we had already had two years of hotel management training because the way the training was structured is that let's say you learn to be a chef for six months and then they send you to a resort to practice that for another six months let's say you learn to be a receptionist 
for three months. They send you to the hotel, different hotels in the country to be a receptionist. So it was theory and practice, theory and practice. So then after two years of that, these scholarships came. And they were wonderful scholarships from the way they were, uh, they were promoted, that will go to India and spend four years of undergraduate training. So would get a bachelor's degree in hotel management. So sure enough, we went to India. A year later, or within a year of our being there, I found out, and many of us found out, the eight of us found out that whatever India was going to teach us in the coming, in the four years there would be really redundant to what we had already learned in Tanzania through the Tanzania Hotel School, through theory and then practice. So I championed a movement to end those scholarships, to terminate the scholarships and send us back to Tanzania. Because I had figured out, and most of us had figured out, although most of us wanted to stay, to continue, because it was better than being in Tanzania. You have scholarship, you have an allowance. They are giving us 600 rupees a month to live there. But I, 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 I didn't see the, uh, the real benefit of going over stuff that we had already learned. So through a, a, a big movement, activist movement, and uh, a lot of convincing to our government, because it was a government issue, the government of India had given these scholarships to the government of Tanzania, you know, part of their foreign relations, at a time when Indians were being thrown out of Uganda, which is the country no, uh, northwest of uh, Tanzania. So they wanted Tanzania to be more friendly with, uh, uh, with India and the Indians in Tanzania in the region through this kind of relationship. So it was really a political thing. So to be able to cancel these scholarships, we had to convince our government, which at the time was socialist government, didn't have a lot of freedom of speech, like being a student, Really, you couldn't go and tell your government, I don't want to continue here because you're really, you're really a subject of the government at the time. But by some luck, we were able to convince our government through our ambassador in India, who then approved the cancellation of those scholarships midstream for all of us to be returned to Tanzania. So eight of us were returned to Tanzania. That was very bold, right? I mean, that is, it's that sort of an international incident there, turning down the that those scholarships to to come back to. It sounds like you really were having to trust something inside that said this isn't right. Absolutely, and it was so significant that I mean, we even met Mama Indira Gandhi. I still remember meeting her. Namaste, you know, greeting Mama Indira Gandhi who was the the Prime Minister of, of India. It was that significant. But anyway, so <laughs> uh, to make a long story short, we returned to Tanzania. This is early 1973. We are then uh, uh, distributed to different hotels. And uh, I became assistant manager of Lobo Wildlife Lodge. This is early 1973. Others were, you know, assistant managers in different hotels. So we were promoted almost immediately to assistant managers. 
Okay, so here I'm doing normal work in the Serengeti, is the wild. You know, uh, there is really nothing near there. The only thing we have is tourists who come during the high seasons. And uh, during the low season, you know, you hardly have any tourists. You may have maybe 10 rooms, 20 rooms, or 30 rooms occupied. The rest is empty, like ghost town, because uh, tourism in Tanzania uh, is very seasonal. And when tourists come, you know, you are so happy, you know, like, wow, here they're coming. You want to really treat them like gold. And again, given my experience with Alistair and Sam and Nikki, for me, when these people came to the lodge, it was as if they came to my home. Welcome to Lobo Lodge. I was very excited. And really from my heart, it was like, it wasn't a gimmick. <laughs> I wasn't trying to get tips. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a performance. <laughs> no. <laughs> For me, it was like, welcome home, you know, welcome home. First you're in Tanzania and you hear Lobo Lodge. I was very happy. And I trained the staff to act as such. Like, you've got to be happy. These people are, are paying their salaries. They're happy to visit your country from so far away and, uh, you know, give them the best service. Give them the best food, the best drink, make sure their room is very clean, and all the basics of hotel management. So one, one day uh, in 73, about April, about March, April, one of the families came to the lodge. I was at the reception when they arrived. Welcome to Lobo Lodge. Uh, please register. Uh, your rooms are ready. Uh, so the bellman takes the luggage to the room. Hope you have a wonderful stay here. And then later on, they come to the dining room up there. Oh, welcome, you know. Uh, hope you have a nice meal. And the waiter is smiling. And, you know, everybody's happy. It's a very happy environment. What happened, though, uh, that day is, again, a very strange event. They went to the swimming pool. When they finished uh, swimming at the pool, they were, it was in the evening, about five o'clock in the evening, they went back to their room. 6.30, 7 o'clock, just before dinner, a man comes to the, to the desk and says, uh, he needs some help. So I hear that, I come out of the manager's office, which was behind the reception, I come and say, hey, how are you? How is everything going? He says, everything's going very well. We really love this place, a lovely place. We really enjoy it. Then he said, by the way, did anybody turn in uh, a small handbag? Uh, a lady's handbag. I said, let me check. Uh, I asked the receptionist, the receptionist who normally receive these uh, lost and found type of things and would put them under lock and key. Say, please check what, what kind of a handbag you're talking about. Oh, it was, let's say it was black with, uh, uh, didn't have much inside, just our passports and uh, nothing really important except the passport. I asked the head of the reception, check. He checked, said, no, nobody's turned in it yet. I said, uh, I said, okay, let, let me ask around. Let me ask the staff at the pool. And uh, the bar, maybe they left it there. So the gentleman said, don't, don't worry too much, but uh, let us know if uh, anybody found it. 
we'll be happy to know. So they went to dinner normally. Meanwhile, it wasn't there. The pool attendant, by then he shifted ended, so went back to the staff village. They had a village, which was about 800, this about a thousand yards away from the hotel. And you have to go through a little forest. Mind you, we're in the Serengeti. So the little forest, normally, you don't just walk by yourself. You have to walk in groups because there could be a leopard or lion or something can come out of the bush. And at Lobo Lodge, we were known for a resident leopard. Sometimes at dinner time, you'd see a leopard outside because it was all glass, glass dining room. So it would come there and look inside, you know, very silly. So given that nobody had turned this in, I got concerned. I got concerned not for anything, but for the passports because this family was leaving the next day. So I said, okay, let me do this. Normally, the manager doesn't go to the staff village. That's like their private uh, living quarters, you know. They have a bar there, you know, and they have their family or their girlfriends, whatever. So you, you separate between workplace and uh, living place. You don't interfere, especially if you're the manager. You don't interfere because that's like overbearing. Anyway, given the circumstance, I said, I'll walk to, to the staff village and talk to them, see if anybody found it, maybe hasn't turned it in yet. So I went there and talked to, to as soon as they saw me, they said, hey, Mzeb, 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 means, uh, sir, 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 polite, uh, respectful term in Swahili. Mzeb, Mzeb, welcome, welcome. Can we get you a beer? Suddenly I was one of them there. Here I'm their boss, but here I'm one of them. It's like, that's how close we were, like a small family again. And I treated them as such. With me, they had no fear except to do their job the best they can do how. That was my management style. It has always been. So they were very happy to see me. So they offered me a beer. I sat down with them. I drank some beer. We were chatting. Like just one of us. Camaraderie. And then halfway, about uh, half an hour as we're drinking beer and chatting around, they're all happy, smiles. I'm there with them. I told them the story. I said, we have an American family. Uh, They're due to live tomorrow. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the lady had, had forgotten a handbag by the pool area. And probably somebody saw it and uh, hasn't returned it yet because their passport's in there. They're leaving tomorrow. So if, if you know of anyone who saw it, please uh, let them know that uh, we'll appreciate if they return it. Like I, I, for the first time, I'm pleading for their help. If anyone has seen this, please help. It's the right thing to do, so to speak. So, okay, I have that beer. Then I return uh, after that beer. And I've already le left them with that homework, so to speak. That responsibility. So I return to, to the lodge and everything goes on normally. And uh, I, see, I see the guests. I talk to them in the dining room. I talk to all the guests table by table. How are you? How's everything? How is the service? How is the food? Can we get something else? No, everything's beautiful. We really love it here. It's really gorgeous and on and on. So then at the end, they go back uh, to their room and uh, nothing happens that evening. Early next morning, breakfast time, one of the pool staff comes over to me. Say, Zem, Zem, sir, sir, I was walking around the pool. I saw a handbag over there. I say, you saw a handbag where? 
there in the bush, somewhere in the bush there. I didn't touch it, but uh, I wanted to let you know because yesterday you told us when you came to the bar there that some guests had left something. And I wanted to let you know, I saw it up there. Immediately I went and found this American family. I say one of my staff just told me they saw a handbag. I wanted to let you know uh, that a handbag has been seen somewhere. If we all can go and see it, see if it is your handbag. So we went, and sure enough, it was their handbag. The passports were in there. Everything was in there. But there was some money in it was in there. So that everything was good, but wasn't perfect. So when they saw, yeah, that's the one. Oh, Credo, thank you so much. That's our handbag. They looked inside the passport. All the main things were in there. So they were very, very thankful that uh, they can continue with, it, with their trip. And that for some way that they uh, ascribe it to my intervention, that my personal intervention made that handbag reappear, so to speak. You understand what I'm saying? In a very strange way. And uh, so they left the next day. They were very happy. Thank you so much. Here's my card. Uh, if there's anything we can do for you, don't hesitate. Let us know. They left. So that was the end of that experience. So everything was going normal, normally. <laughs> About three months later, I'm still at Lobo Lodge. The president of the hotel company, who was situated in Dar es Salaam, thousands of miles away, comes over to the lodge for a meeting with the general manager and the key staff, the management staff. And at the end of the meeting says, Craig, I would like to talk to you uh, 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 at the end of this meeting. Says, sure, sir. So at the end of the meeting, uh, I remain in the office, just the two of us. He tells me, I have uh, surprising good news for you. Say, oh, thank you. I'm excited. Oh, thank you. He says, we received a wonderful letter about you from a uh, guest who stayed, stayed in this hotel, this lodge. They were very happy with your service, your assistance to them, and the way your staff behaved, the service, and everything was fantastic. They were so happy. They wrote a letter saying, of all the places they've traveled in the world, and they travel a lot in the world, they've never seen uh, such a good service, uh, good attention, as they found here at this lodge. And they were very happy with you personally that they want to extend a scholarship to you personally for as long as you like to study in America. Wow. I said, this is unbelievable. Given that, you know, very often you do things like that. You help guests, you know, something goes wrong, you help them, and they give you a card and say, if there's anything I can do for you, let us know. And then after a while, you throw away the card. You know, because you get this a lot. You never know how big it can be. And I mean, this was like out of this world. I've never heard a story like that before myself. That people stay in your lodge for one night, they leave and they write such a long letter, a long letter saying a lot of things about the hotel and you personally. So I was, I was so happy. I was uh, so happy. But not just a long letter. They're, they're offering to pay for your schooling in the United States. Imagine. Imagine. In the United States. Imagine that. Where does that come from? 
It's like God given gift from another, another world, from the stars somewhere, from heaven. This is gift from heaven. If there's one thing kids in less developed countries or poor countries or Africa dream of is to go to United States of America. Yeah. You, even when you have met and lived in an American family like I had done here, but to go to America is a dream. It's a dream. So here it's handed to me through my boss. So I was very excited. I was so happy. I was beyond words. He said, thank you very much. But then what he said is, we are still working at it. We are still communicating with this family. And when it is um, finalized, we'll let you know. So they took charge of it in a way that I had no control whatsoever. And trusting them, I, 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 I trusted them and just continued with my work. Months later, he came, he came again for meetings there at the lodge. And uh, I asked him about it. There, we're still working on it. We are still working on it. Still working on it. And it died. Nothing happened. Oh, no. Nothing happened by it. That's a very sad thing. But, you know, this, uh, since I didn't have it in my hand, I was sad. But it, 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 it was as if it was on the way coming to me, but it had not arrived yet. You know what I mean? Yes. So there was still that disappointment. <laughs> to that, say the least. To say the least. That here, I was given, to put it mildly, I was given a passport to go to America. And not just a passport. Everything you need to go to America, to go to school for as long as you want. I could have gone to the United States with this scholarship if it materialized then and pursue a PhD in whatever crazy stuff I wanted. It didn't matter to them. Wow. That's so much bigger than our idea of winning the lottery, where at least your universe stays the same, but you've got, you know, more money. This would be like winning a whole new universe. A whole new universe. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. I, it was just unbelievable. And the whole thing dies. But the whole thing dies in these people's hands. And I, know, I, I didn't know. But you know, the, the thing with my, my life, things do reveal themselves later. As uh, this story will finally reveal what happened. I didn't know what happened. These people didn't tell me. And being your boss, you, know, you cannot harass them every time you see them. What happened? Where is it? How far are you? So it, it kind of died. But it died in a very strange way. It, it, it was as if to give birth to something else. And this is a good way to put it, as if to give birth to something else. So I continue working on this law. This is 73 March. Now we go to 74. Early 74. I'm working normally. And then one afternoon, about probably around three or four o'clock in the afternoon. I see a Land Rover coming in. That looks familiar to me. The Land Rover looks familiar to me. And I look as it, it arrives, and I see Mama Nikki comes out of it. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I see Mama Nikki. 
oh, very pregnant. She's very pregnant at the time. So she's, she's cabin a Land Rover, very pregnant through these rough roads from wherever she came from to Lobo Lodge where I am. What a surprise. What a su surprise. I go, Babaniki, Babaniki, how are you? Welcome. I'm, I'm going nuts. I can't believe. So there she is. And, uh, you know, we find a room. She goes to the room. And the later she comes out, she says, I have very good news for you, she tells me. Smiling in our, in our own uh, magical stuff, in our own uh, lovely stuff, you know, very motherly, you know, very motherly. Yeah, she said, I have very good news for you, very good news for you, I'll tell you. So I'm excited, you know, I'm excited to see her. I haven't seen her for a while. I want to know oh, what has happened to her, what has happened to Sam, what's going on with them? Because I haven't seen them for a while. So I'm very excited, you know, like from nowhere. So then uh, she tells me about them, what they've been doing. She's, uh, of course, I see she's pregnant. I think that's Benjamin, your, your younger brother. This is 74, it must be Benjamin. So uh, I say, wow. Tell me, what's the good news? So she tells me when they got back to the States, when Bamaniki and Sam got back to the States, Sam had quit from uh, the State Department and joined a group of friends to found a new international university called Doug Hamashaw University in Maryland. And uh, while they were, uh, while, while there, he managed to find a space for me in the university. One day, as they were sharing their experiences in Africa with uh, uh, their friends, they were showing slides and pictures of their experiences in Africa, people they met, where they'd been. When they were talking about my family, they were so, so moved by my family, as they were, as I knew they were, uh, because, I mean, they left, they left me. Uh, I was a member of the family. I was really uh, part of that family. And they kept saying, you know, if they had the means at the time, they would have brought me with them to the United States. And as they said that, and see, uh, uh, feeling kind of not despondent, but sorry for not being able to do it because they were young, they were starting a family, they didn't really have the means. One of the what what one person in the audience, one of their friends in the audience, suddenly from nowhere said, "Just bring him. I'll pay for it. Bring him over. Don't worry about that. Bring him over. I'll pay for it." So there, another scholarship was born, right there. Now see how things fell into place. Remember the first scholarship died? See how things fell into place with this scholarship. This doesn't happen ever. 
right? That, I mean, that people just get a scholarship from an American family that says, I will pay for your trip all the way to the United States. I will pay for your school. Like, this doesn't happen. Have you, had you ever heard of anyone? It doesn't happen. Have you ever gotten that? No. And, and, now, in this fashion, no. and now this happens no. twice no. in a year yes. or two? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It, 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 remember now, we returned from India early 73 because we canceled those scholarships. Because if we didn't cancel the scholarship, I would still be in India. And we meet this first American family who offers you scholarship for as long as you want to study in America. After meeting them for one, one evening, that dies. A year later, while at the same place, Lobo Lodge, Mamaniki comes and, say, and tells me the story of how this scholarship was born. So I am exhilarated. I'm so happy. And sure enough, that's the only reason she, she, Babaniki came to Lobo Lodge. The next day she left. So this was like, you know, I don't know, it's like, uh, it's, it's really miraculous that the objective of our trip there was to, to personally offer me this scholarship. Wow. And when that and that <laughs> that advanced in a pregnancy, driving over you know rough roads, the Serengeti. In my rough road, I mean, look, she took chances, but it was so important for her to hand carry this important for for how she valued me, how Sam and Nikki valued me as a person. They wanted to make sure this happens. They wanted to make sure that I, I come to the United States and join them in the United States. That was the importance of this. It's not just go to school somewhere. You know, no, they wanted me to go back and join them as a member of that family again. Incredible. That was left behind. Yes. Do you understand? I do. Yeah. I do. So, amazing. So here, here we are. She tells me the details of the scholarship. So now I say, I, I relate to her. Uh, whatever communication about scholarship, let's do personally. Because what happened before through my company, my, my uh, superiors here, they squandered that uh, opportunity. So this time uh, I, I will be managing it with you myself. Okay, so way to deal. So the understanding to make it happen. One, you have to have a passport. You have to have an air ticket. You have to have a scholarship and student visa uh, sent from United States, from the university. You have to obtain uh, a, a, a visa to travel to United States while in Tanzania from the American embassy. Each of these things has its own processes. So to obtain a passport, normally an individual cannot just obtain a passport. I cannot go to Minister of Foreign Affairs and, and request a passport. In a socialist country, you wouldn't get one. But I had one already because the government had sent me to India. But I came back early and I had it in my pocket. I had that passport. So that was already taken care of. I needed a scholarship extended from a university in the United States. Sam was already at Doug Hammershaw University. He sent me the documents, Sam himself. Had, had, had charged to get those documents. And he could get it because he was a Doug Amateur. He didn't have to go through any bureaucracy of another university. 
You understand? So I had that. I needed to have a ticket. To get a ticket, money has to be sent to the airline uh, company. But to be able to send security to the airline company, remember my friend Joseph, who got me back to school. He was now working at this airline, British Airways. He was there already. So I could tell Mama Nikki to send everything straight to Joseph, who then would come to me and say, Credo, it's here. <laughs> then I needed a visa from, uh, from the American embassy. As a Tanzanian citizen, I couldn't personally go to the embassy. You're not allowed to visit an, an embassy. You cannot. You're not allowed to go in. Again, it's a socialist country. Or the ambassador is not going to receive you. You are not important enough to go and meet an ambassador as a Tanzanian citizen. So there had to be some other intervention there. What happened? Around May, June 74, we had a reservation at Lobo Lodge. Again, Lobo Lodge. Everything is happening at Lobo Lodge. Uh, we had a reservation for three American ambassadors, not one, three American ambassadors of East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. They're all coming to Lobo Lodge with their families just to, to enjoy. They were tourists coming to stay there. Guess who met them? I met them. Guess who was at the dining room? I was there. Guess who was at the bar? I was there offering them after dinner drinks. And at that point, because they'd seen me in every occasion of their experience at Lobo Lodge, the ambassadors welcomed me to sit down with them say, Credo, come over here. Come and sit with us. So I sat down with them by a fireplace a Lobo Lodge. And we started talking and a general conversation about the Lodge, about uh, Serengeti, and about me. They started asking me, well, did you receive your training? I said, I received my training here at Tanzania Hotel School. And then we were in India for about a year. Oh, do you know Cornell University? Have you heard of Cornell University? I say, no, sir. By then, I had not heard about Cornell University. I say, well, that's the best hotel school in the world. The, uh, one of the ambassadors was bragging. They say, oh, wow, good, good to hear, good to hear. And, uh, okay, the conversation went on. And then, at the end, he said, if you ever come to Dar es Salaam, the city, come over and say hello. Come on and say hello. I want to know how, how you're doing at Lobo Lodge. So a personal invitation by U.S. ambassador to Tanzania, to me as an individual, anytime I'm in Dar es Salaam, that city, to go and say hello. Normally that doesn't happen because there has to be protocol. You understand? Not just inviting anybody. But this ambassador was happy enough as a human being to another human being to say, when you're in Dar es Salaam, just come over and say hello. So, so remember about this scholarship. I had the scholarship from Sam from Doug Hamishan University. I had my passport because I traveled to India, so I had the passport. I could be sent a ticket through Joseph British Airways anytime if everything was ready. Mama Nikki would send, uh, will transfer funds to British Airways to give me it for that ticket. So what I needed is a visa. And to get the visa to travel, I had to go 
to U.S. Embassy. How do I go to U.S. Embassy? The only way you normally do is the way scholarships work. The Ministry of Education in Tanzania is sent that scholarship by Dal Hamashon University. So we are looking to, to offer scholarship to a Tanzanian student to come and study here for such a time under this scholarship. Then the Ministry of Education will find some kid they, they like, they want, or related to them, and offer this scholarship to this kid. And then they'll process all the documents, everything, including the visa through foreign affairs, this is through Secretary of State of Tanzania to the embassy, embassy to Secretary of State, to Secretary of Education, and then to the individual. Before this can happen, you gotta go through these loops. In my case, I didn't have this relationship because the scholarship was specific to me, and I didn't want Mama Nikki and Sam to send it to the Ministry of Education because I knew being a nobody, not from a prestigious family or anything, they'll give it to another kid. I wouldn't get it. It wouldn't come to me. So around, around July, I have a normal work vacation. Holiday. So I travel from Lobo Lodge, which is in Serengeti, to the main city, Dar es Salaam, for normal vacation, two weeks vacation. While I'm there, with my passport, with doc documentation from Daga Hamajo University from Sam, I go to the American Embassy. It's very well guarded environment. So I go and at the gate, you have the US Marines. So I go nicely, politely greet them. Hello, hello, my, uh, my name is Kratos Sinyango. I'm here to, uh, to visit with the ambassador. I'm, a friend, um, I'm friends with the ambassador. The Marines, of course, they're trained to be skeptical. Like who is a street guy coming here saying he's friends with the ambassador? I mean, you know, how do, he doesn't add up. They said, you are a friend to the ambassador? I said, yes. So after, after insisting a little bit, they said, okay, let, let us go and uh, talk to the ambassador. You stay here at the gate. So they went inside. And for, unfortunately, that day, the ambassador was there. You know, all these things have their own coincidences. That particular individual has to be there. Because if, if that particular individual is not there, it doesn't happen. It's like the alignment of the stars, you know? They have to align. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't happen. Like the ray, you know, comes from somewhere to buy it. You have to be there. Otherwise, you will not benefit from it. So here I am, waiting. And before I know it, the ambassador, I see the ambassador right there. <laughs> the ambassador itself came. Crino, how are you? Come in. Because the Marines then open the gates, and Ambassador checks my hand. But together we walk all the way to his office, big American office. I see the the bald eagle there, the American flag. He's so happy to see me. I'm so happy to see to see how are things at Lobo Lodge. So I tell him about Lobo Lodge. Oh, things are going well. Uh, uh, we're in the high season now. A lot of tourists. And uh, uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing very well here. Uh, we really would like to come back to Lobo Lodge. We would like to come back again to Lobo. We had such a good time, the ambassador says. And then, to make a long story short, he said, what can I do for you? He poses a question. I said, you won't believe it. I remember last time you were telling me about Cornell University. It's the best university in the United States. Uh, I got scholarship to go to America, to university in America, Dr. Hamish University in Washington, in, in Maryland. 
Oh, really? That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. So happy for you. Wow. And then he paused. What can I do? How can I help you? I say, I got all the other requirements, but what I need now is, is a visa to go to America. Oh, you need a visa? You got your passport? I say, yes, sir. So I take my passport and give it to him. He said, wait here, he tells me. Wait here. He goes in, boom. He puts the visa on my passport. He comes back, <laughs> here's the visa. All the best to you. <laughs> and then I leave the office. So I got all the requirements now, remember. The only thing now I have to do is uh, call Mamaniki and say, please, you can now send for the ticket. I'll be ready to leave. This is around July, July 8th, 9th, 1974. Sure enough, she does that to Joseph. Joseph comes over to me. Uh, uh, that time I was at New Africa Hotel and said, Credo, I got some news for you. So we go and sit privately. He tells me, uh, money has been sent and he has a ticket for me. When do I want to fly? I say, when is your next flight? He tells me where the next flight is. So we arrange. Uh, on that day, I have one of the managers at uh, New Africa Hotel to escort me to the airport, vouching that I'm going to the United States to study on behalf of the hotel industry. Why? Because the customs of the immigration want to know who's, who is sending you. So he was like an authority figure, a friend of mine, who was my roommate in India. When we were in India, he was my roommate. His name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So Emmanuel was me, he's dressed in, you know, in a suit, very official. Uh, so as they asked the question, ah, yeah, we're sending him to the United States to study, and they'll come back, uh, give us more know-how, blah, blah, blah. So they, they put me the exit visa there, you know. So I go through to the plane while my family is upstairs there watching. I enter the aircraft. The aircraft takes off and I fly to United States. For one moment, how is this for your family? I mean, they were so excited. They were so happy because for them too, if one of them goes to America, they knew now you are going to rich country. You'll be able then to help them out even more. Like, they will not be poor anymore, you know? Like, you are, you're going to be a rich brother in America. You know, the way many poor people think is that when you come to America, suddenly you become rich. Like, you can pick <laughs> dollars from trees, you know? <laughs> dollars everywhere, you know? But it, even if it's not the case, once you get a job, you, uh, you know, you, you start making a good salary, you can help them out. That is their thinking. So they're all very excited. Very, very happy. And of course, they knew Mamaniki and Sam. So they collect that, oh, you're going back to Mamaniki and Sam. So for them, it was, oh, you're going back to, to, to the family, to the richer, bigger, better, loving family. That's where you're going. And we will all be better off because of it. So rather than envious, they were, they were just excited for you. Oh, excited, very happy and grateful. Oh. Praying to God for me, Mamaniki and Sam, all of us. Wonderful. So, so I arrive, and then uh, there I am, Columbia, Maryland. And uh, here we are at the dinner table. We're talking. And Sam tells me, Sam and Nikki tell me that uh, the Doug Hammerschild didn't open. I said, what? I have scholarship from Doug Hammerschild University. So there's no scholarship? Um, there's no university? So Sam laughs. He says, no, you know, it didn't open after all due to, I think, financial constraints, whatever. Something happened, so it didn't open. But he said, uh, 
my friends uh, with whom we were trying to open Dagahanashad University uh, at American University. So uh, I've spoken with them. Uh, we have spoken with them, and uh, they have a place for you at American University. And uh, uh, next week, we'll go to American University, and uh, we'll go through admissions and all that, and that will be done. So you'll be at American University. Yeah, oh, fantastic. In Washington. Yeah. Okay. So a few days later, we go to Washington, D.C., and go to American University. I get registered everything smoothly, and I start American University. Undergraduate, uh, that's around September uh, 1974. And I take a lot of courses, and, uh, and I do very well. Surprisingly, I did very well. I had some A's, a few B's, but it was really, really unbelievable. Because it even surprised myself. And I had a good time there. I met some new kids, American life, you know. I enjoyed very much. At first, it was a shock because U.S. is very, very different. For example, as, 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 we are, as I arrive at Kennedy, because I had to fly through Kennedy, so I, I have my, my luggage, and I start walking out, and then the, the gates open automatically. So they open, and I'm shocked, like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that before. And then I look outside. People are walking so fast. So I asked somebody next to me, I said, why are they walking so fast? Why are they running? He said, no, that's how people walk around here. <laughs> so suddenly I'm shocked. So I go back inside the airport. I sit down for a while to absorb it <laughs> because it was, it was a shock. Anyway, so after the first semester, it is Christmas time. I'm home for Christmas. So they, uh, they asked me, so how was the semester? Samaniki asked me, how was the semester? I said, it was very good. Uh, how do you do? So I, I said, I did well. I showed them the grades. And some said, yeah, we've got to find you another school. It wasn't really a challenge for you. Those words you used. It wasn't really a challenge for you. You know, Sam is very particular about uh, and strict about uh, performance. You know, this is a Princeton grad, Columbia University grad. No nonsense type of guy, you know, very loving, very caring, but very, you know. He wants to make sure you get the best education you can. Yes, he always wants to make sure you get the best. Yeah. So he said, so he says, yeah, I don't know. Then in the conversation, uh, they say, what did we call Cornell? See, see what Cornell is. Besides, you know, that would be uh, a much better school for you, you know, for tourism. You never know one day you might go back and help your people in Tanzania. And uh, so, so Nikki picks up the phone and calls Cornell. So he calls Cornell and talks to admissions. And Cornell says, and she says, uh, paraphrasing, of course, I have a young man here from Tanzania, tourism, motels, and... Uh, He's at American University. He's been there for one semester. But we're really convinced that he should be at Cornell because you are the best. You're, again, echoing the words of the ambassador about the best hotel school. And uh, she says, you are the best, and uh, we think he will do very well there. And he's really, uh, he could be an asset for his country. So the admission says, well, you know, uh, for the spring semester, we only admit 
uh, about 50 students, but for the fall it would be a lot uh, more convenient, uh, a lot easier. And uh, Nick insists, uh, no, no, we, we want to try, we want to try uh, for the spring semester, if you can help us out. Uh, uh, so the lady admission is already convinced. Uh, Nick is very convincing, very persuasive. Uh, so she, by, by then she had already convinced the admissions lady that uh, she had to run with this. <laughs> so sure enough, a few days later, we, we received applications. I, uh, we fill in the applications. She asked me to fill the applications. And uh, we send. And to make a long story short, this is Christmas, New Year. By the New Year, spring semester, I'm at Cornell. I start spring semester at Cornell, 1975. Completely new experience. Wonderful environment. Beautiful uh, facilities. Not as crowded as American University. You know, American University is a city environment. So this is expansive, you know, lakes and hills and, oh, gorgeous place. Gorgeous place. So I'm happy there, but it's very cold too. A lot of snow. <laughs> a, a lot of snow. <laughs> a bit more than Dar es Salaam, I would guess. <laughs> a, lot more than, a lot more than Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> so, so I sat that semester and uh, I do well and... Uh, the dean of uh, the School of Hotel Administration likes me a lot too and appoints me as his assistant to grade all the pract uh, practicums. To graduate from the hotel school, you need to do two practicums, work for the su two summers and write a report. And uh, you have to pass those two reports to graduate. So the dean of the hotel school gives me that responsibility. So I take over that and also become teaching assistant in a number of courses, marketing, human resources, and on and on. So fortunately, uh, in two and a half years, I graduated. And, and Sam was there at my graduation. He could make it to my graduation. But during that time at Cornell, I get to meet the lady who offered scholarship to Sam and Nikki uh, at the very beginning. Her name is Mrs. Dora, Dora Hillman, who has an interesting story of her own, too, related to uh, to hotel industry. So you wonder why she was so charmed by this whole thing. A part of it is our own background. Now, what, what of our own background uh, fits into this story I'm telling? She was uh, a waitress in a restaurant in Pittsburgh near Ligonia Valley. And uh, there was this very morose guy who come there for meals and liked sitting at this lady's table, this lady's station. She would always ask for Dora, Dora's table. So we'd sit at Dora's table. And Dora was very gregarious, very charming lady, a lot of energy, very fun to be with. So this gentleman would come there a lot. And then one day, he proposed to marry her. <laughs> and married her. She's a waitress, by the married her. She's accepted. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some years later, this man died oh. and left her $80 million. Wow. $80 million. So she was, she was a millionaire. She became a millionaire just by virtue of being a waitress. And this guy takes a liking for her, marries her, passes away, 
and becomes a millionaire herself. So that's the order. So anyway, during weekends, some uh, summer or vacation, whenever vacation time, I'll drive to see her in Liga near Valley. By then she was living in Liga near Valley. I'll visit with her, spend some time with her. We were like two, two good friends, two good friends. We go around the, the town, get back, uh, cook dinner, eat dinner. We were, you know, like we have known each other for years. So again, whatever Alistair, Nick and Sam had invested me as an individual, that carried forward with people that I met later on, even at the university. At Cornell, very quickly, I was made president of all African students at Cornell. I was made resident advisor of International Living Center, and on and on. Anyway, so I, I, I get to know Mrs. Hillman. It is always, it is Mrs. Hillman and Craig. It's about the two of us. She's, she never asked me about uh, anybody else. It's like the two of us, you know, we are hitting it well. We're good friends. We have a good time. And for me, she's like my mother. She's a lot older. Uh, she, she was then in late 60s, early 70s. She's an old lady, so she was like uh, my mother. Uh, with, she was completely gray hair and all that, but full of energy, full of energy. I think she was even driving a pickup truck or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of person. I also very religious, like born-again Christian, very religious, which I could understand. Remember, I was in the seminary for a year, so mm -hmm. I had that background. Mm -hmm. of religion, the Bible, and so on. I knew it very well. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so we got along very, very, very well. So after graduating that summer, I said, uh, let me go and thank her for uh, uh, having made this possible, for being so generous and friends with me. And uh, let her know what I would like to do next kind of thing, because we already had that relationship and rapport I believe that if, if it made sense, she would facilitate. Why? Because, for example, during the summer, she would ask me, what do you want to do this summer? I say, well, I haven't made any plans, but so why don't you go to Europe? Why don't you visit Europe? Go and see how, how, how Europe is running their tourism, see how people live and so on and so forth. You know you're America, but go and see Europe. So she would ask me, how much you think you need? I would, you know, just pick up a figure, reasonable figure. She'll write a check, give it to me and say, go enjoy Europe. Go and have fun. She was that type of lady. Every time, you know. Yeah. No hesitation. In fact, she would urge me to do things like that. I would go to Paris. I would go to um, Copenhagen. I would go Oslo. I would go everywhere, you know. I, I was all over the U Europe every time. I was probably the luckiest student in the world that every summer, every holiday, I could go anywhere I wanted. Yeah, so that's, again, unusual uh, offering, unusual opportunity that God just gave it to me, you know? Just God gave it. Sometimes I didn't even have to ask. Wow. I didn't even have to ask. I just have to remark on, like, what a magical world you've lived in, right? Where, where things like this like happen. Cinderella. Just incredible it, it gifts. Was, I tell you, it was like Cinderella in a castle. Incredible. I mean, right? And kind of story. Yes, <laughs> kind such of story. generosity. And, and so many families a world away from where you began, just yes. immediately feeling you were just one of them. 
Yes, I mean, that's like and three now. Yeah, and not that they, but I, it was a true conversion. Like I was one of them, you know, like right. I was extraterrestrial. I took a different personality. Then I was okay with Mrs. Hillman. I was okay with Sam and Nikki, like immediately. And that always has been the case. Even with, uh, I'll give another example, while at Cornell, uh, there was a, an international group, but there were eight of us from different nationalities. We got together, we would cook every day, take turns. We are still friends today. Still friends today from that international living center. And when we see each other, it's as if uh, we never parted. Like we are really brothers completely. We call ourselves international brothers. You know, you have one from Singapore. We have one from Spain, one from Philippines, one from Greece that I even visited Greece, one from Philippines. We had one from uh, Fiji, who unfortunately died. We had one from Armenia, Armenia. unfortunately, he passed away since. So people like that, we are friends still today. Is that uh, quality of friendship, brotherhood, humanity that uh, relaxes any boundaries, any barriers? You are just human beings. Who, who love each other for who you are, not for what you have, not even for what you have, for who you are. That commonality of humanity is what we always aspire. And all these people that I've been with, you know, it, it feels that way, regardless of age. Or we don't even ask each other what age you are, what religion you are, or what race you are. We don't see. We are blind to all those things. <laughs> That's so wonderful, Kredo. All right. So you graduate. So I graduate. Go back to Dora. Yeah. So I graduate with Dora. Thanking her, having a good time with her. It's, uh, we drive around and pick up drive, go to the grocery store, do this, do that. We're having fun. And then as I thank her, then she asked me, what do you want to do? By then I had already kind of uh, thought of going to graduate school. So I brought the subject, I say, I've been thinking of going to business school, I said, and I've talked to business school at Cornell and uh, the dean at the hotel school, you know, there will be my references, they'll help me uh, to get into, it would be easy for me to get in if I have the, the funding. So for once during all these years, I'm talking now 74 to 77, time of 77. Uh, and uh, as I'm telling this story, she came from nowhere suddenly, from nowhere and says, I'm not convinced. She says, I'm not convinced. You have had the best education in the world, Cornell Hotel School. Time for you to go home and help your people, she says. Mm. So it, it falls like a, a brick on my head mm. because never before would she, wouldn't she say, yeah, uh, apply and uh, definitely go on. That's the right thing for you to do. I want you to go to business school. Nobody should say that. But here it was like <laughs> and he, uh, the end of this phase. She was declaring the end of this phase. And uh, as she did that, Unexpectedly, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was sad. I was sad because one, I didn't expect it, and two, it was totally unlike her in all that I knew about her. And uh, so I felt sad. So to change the subject, she said, "Come, let's go and make dinner. Let's go and think about dinner. See what we're gonna do for dinner, and so on." 
And uh, so we, uh, we went and uh, started thinking about dinner. And uh, as, we were, as we were preparing dinner or eating dinner, she asked me, yeah, tell me about your family. For some reason, at that point, she wanted to know about my family. Never before had she asked me about my family. So I related to her for the first time about my family, who they are, what they are. And then I continue until when I met Nikki and Sam. And then I continue. And then I remember 1973, that family, American family that came to Lobo Lodge and wrote that letter. To, my, to the president of the company, who then told me and told me that they were working on it. But the long letter about the scholarship that they were giving to me for as long as I wanted to study in America. So I say that to her, and suddenly she, she lights up. She says, what? I say, yeah, there was an American family that, now I remember I'd come to Lobo Lodge, and offered through my boss, through a letter, that they would give me a scholarship to study for as long as I wanted. Oh, she got really excited. She said, do you know who they are, where they are? I said, no, I don't. Uh, all I remember is the last name, Haas. I said, the last name is Haas. Otto Haas from United States. Where in the United States? I say, I have no idea. It's been a long time. Mind you, it was 73, and all they did is leave me a card. Even if you kept the card while you were in Tanzania, by the time you come to the United States, you throw all that stuff away. You have made it. You have made the United States. You have a scholarship. You're going to university. You don't keep cards like that. That, that doesn't matter anymore. It's gone. So I said, all I remember is uh, their last name, Otto Haas. Says, okay, let's, let's finish dinner. And then after dinner, what I'll do, uh, we'll go with you, we'll go through the phone book and try different hours uh, that are in the book. We'll try to call them, see if they might lead us to uh, the hours who you met by any chance, if there is any luck, because hours is a common name. There are a lot of hours in America, she says. I, did, I had no idea. You know, I didn't know that part about America. But she's educating me that because if somebody's called auto house, it doesn't mean that it's one or two. There could be a lot of them. <laughs> Thousands. Yeah, so say, Millions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I say, okay. So we did and we finish and then say, okay, come, let's call. She's very excited. <clears throat> let's call. Even though she has no idea even what state they live in, she just wants to start calling no. all the houses in the whole country. Right. Right. That was my understanding. <laughs> She's not, not afraid of much. <laughs> with, the hope, with the hope that uh, uh, one can lead us to another. It's like uh, networking. So I start the networking. So, okay, I'm sitting there. She picks up her phone, the old phone. She goes, hello, hello. Uh, she's, she, she's a very confident, very charming lady when she speaks. Hello, hello. This is Dora Hillman. I'm calling uh, a house uh, to see if you can help us find uh, a house that uh, we are looking for uh, because I have a young man here from uh, Tanzania who says he know he had met uh, somebody called a family called Otto Haas. 
she says. And uh, then there is silence. And at the other end, asks, can you repeat what you just said? So Dora Hillman, Mrs. Hillman, starts, uh, hello, hello, this is Dora Hillman. I'm calling because I have a young Tanzanian boy here who says that he had met a house family uh, in Tanzania uh, a long time ago. And we'd like to know if you can help us. Before she finishes the sentence, the guy at the other end says, is that Credo? <laughs> <laughs> this is the Everybody. first call she makes, right? The first call she makes. Oh, my goodness. It's around 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> and by, as luck would have it, Haas was there near a phone because sometimes when you call Haas, it is his wife who picks up the phone or somebody else might pick up the phone. No, this time Haas himself picked up the phone. So he could Im- immediately, immediately at that point, reach back to when he wrote that letter and say, is that cradle? Wow. And Mrs. Hillman and I were shocked, totally surprised. We couldn't believe it. Like, uh, this is unbelievable. So now, because Mrs. Hillman said, yes, it's cradle. Haas didn't wait a second, said, put him on. He didn't want to hear anything more. Put him on. Incredible. In a very commanding voice. So she puts me on. And then immediately in a very humble, very laid back voice says, Credo, where have you been? Where have you been? I've been looking for you for years. I've been trying every way to find you, to reach you. Where have you been? So to make a long story short, he says, you have to come to Philadelphia. You have to come to Philadelphia and see us. See us. We will all would like to see you. So then, she, then he says, okay, put, uh, put Mrs. Hillman back because I need to give her some instructions. So I put Mrs. Hillman back. They talk for a while to make a long story short. By then, Mrs. Hillman recognized who he was. Why? Because by coincidence, her brother, Mrs. Hillman's brother, lived in Philadelphia, worked for a financial firm, one of these famous ones, if I remember, I'll let you know, who were managing Haas funds. Haas was CEO, but now retired, of Rome and Haas Corporation. Roman has Chemicals Corporation in Philadelphia, a multi-billion dollar uh, company. By then, Mrs. Hillman found out who they were. So she arranged with Mamaniki for Mamaniki to, uh, to chaperone me, to escort me to the house. Because now we knew who they were. They didn't want anything to go wrong, to go wrong here. They wanted to make sure that everything was well presented, like I was packaged right to go and meet them, so to speak. So a date was, was found. Mama Nikki was available. She we went together to Philadelphia to their address, and we arrived there. The entire family, 
as when they met me in 1973 at Lobo Lodge, were there to meet me. It was a very auspicious moment. So Mamaniki started introducing me to them. As she introduced me to them, Mrs. Ha said, no, you don't need, Credo doesn't need any introduction with us. We know Credo. <laughs> From where? <laughs> From where? From that day? That one day they felt they knew me? That's a strange part. So we know Credo, you don't, he doesn't need any, any, any introduction. Mamaniki doesn't need any introduction. At that point, they took over. First of all, we want to uh, assure Credo that the scholarship we had offered him still stands. We are still offering him that scholarship that we had offered to him. Reason he didn't get to him is because now he reveals what happened. The head of his hotel company kept wanting to send somebody else. And we told him, no, this is specific for Credo. And then when, when we said no to this other person they were offering, he suggested that uh, a group of chief executives of tourism would come here for a study tour, that then this scholarship would pay. And we said, no, this is strict for Credo. But Credo, we are very happy. That still stands for you. And tonight we have a special dinner for you. I have a Chinese chef, a resident chef at my house. and. Um, we would like you to come and uh, we'll celebrate you being here. So to fast forward, so by then, then Mamaniki handed me over to the Haas. At that moment, there was like an official handover from Mamaniki, first from Dora Hillman, back to Mamaniki, and Mamaniki to the Haas. So Mamaniki then went back home. Then the Haas took me to their new home. And you wouldn't believe we arrived at this new home. You know, it's the billionaire's home. You have Monet, you have this and that, all these things that I didn't know. I came to know later. And has himself picks my luggage. Picks my luggage as we arrived, said, okay, I'll take your luggage and I'll take it to your new room. He takes me upstairs to a guest room and says, this, this now is your room. And I want you to know that President Ford slept here. And I want you to know... <laughs> And I want you to know that Chancellor Helmut Schmidt from Germany slept here. Yeah, I'm honorary. He, he said, I'm honorary Chancellor of uh, uh, Germany. So he came to visit me and slept here. And now it is your room. Feel at home. And then we'll have dinner served. We'll have drinks first. And then dinner will be served. So a new life began. So now the fourth family has taken you in as family, just like that. Yes. I mean, after one just meeting. Just like that. Just after what one minute. It, it just um, incredible. So we need to fast forward a little bit. So you you end up going on for an MBA with their help in choosing Cornell again. Though you, yes, you'd gotten yes. into multiple yes. wonderful schools, including Wharton. I know yes. if I remember right. And, yes, yes. And there's something very important about going to Cornell at this point because you meet somebody who's very significant now in your life. Very true. Because what happened. Although I got into Wharton as well, which to me, I mean, was a surprise, but probably not a surprise because as he was asking me what do you want to do, which business school you want to go to, I told him Cornell, and he said, well, I applied to Harvard because the dean of Harvard Business School is in my board of directors, and the dean of Wharton Business School I play golf with, 
but you apply uh, wherever you want to go, then uh, you'll go. So I apply, uh, and finally I choose to go to Cornell. And uh, so I start Cornell University Business School. So this is uh, 77, fall of 77. Come fall 78, while I'm at Cornell, one of my friends uh, invites two young ladies to a party that I had in my house. One of my international friends, he happens to be from South Korea. So he invites uh, two girls, one for him and one for me. And so we dance there, you know, we have a nice party and then they leave. And then I like this, 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 this one of the ladies there, I like her a lot because she's so natural, so friendly and full of life, full of life. And good looking, and I would say she was gorgeous. She was very good looking. But there was something about her that was unique. It was her personality, her personality. And the fact that while, we, while she was there, she accepted me fully like an, a, another human. There was that aspect of humanity. The same thing I was referring to from Alistair to Mamaniki Sam to Dora Hillman to hers. There was that aspect in her. I saw that in her. So after that night, when she left, I knew she was so special that I'll pursue her. The only lady that I pursued her uh, a lot. But she, at that time, she wasn't interested in me in that sense because she had another boyfriend. She had another boyfriend. So I pursued her then. One day, I don't know whether she... She took a, a particular liking for me, for a particular reason, whatever. But it, it could have been a, a result of many factors. At that time, I bought RX-7, a sports car, the only one at Cornell. He just came to, <laughs> to America. And I went to, you know, we were just looking at uh, car, uh, car shops, car dealerships with some friends of mine, not because we wanted to buy a car. We were just curious, killing time. And then I saw this car. And it was so unique at the time. I said, I really like this car. How much is this car? So the guy told me how much it was. And for whatever reason, from nowhere, I said, I like this car. I would like to buy this car. So, uh, whatever happened, I bought the car. <laughs> My friends and everybody couldn't believe it. As I was driving it in Ithaca, everybody was looking at me like, who is this African guy <laughs> driving a sports car, a new sports car in town? The only one in town. <laughs> so anyway, so one day I was driving that car my building, and as I was driving, pretty fast, there's a lot of noise in the car. It, you know, it, in those days, it was like a Ferrari, so to speak. <laughs> it, it made a Ferrari noise. So this young lady, she was entering a house. She looked back to see, what kind of car is that? She looked, and she, there I was, and I saw her. I said, Lisa, how are you? I've been calling you. Uh, what's going on? Let's go, let's go for a drink. I told her, just like that. She says, ah, maybe tomorrow. I said, okay, tomorrow I'll call you. So tomorrow, the next day I called her, we went for a drink, and she's never left. That day, from that day, she's never left me. Uh, We've been together since. This 1978. In the fall of 78, I met Lisa. Everything else, whatever, whatever family she came from, whatever ethnicity, whatever color, none of those things mattered with her. For her, it was another human being. Again, that power of humanity. Yeah, another That's person. You know, and she had that. 
she had that. She felt sounds like she felt like family immediately to you too. So sort yeah, of now the, the fifth time this is the lightning yeah. strikes. Yeah, lightning strike. Like nothing else could come between her and me. I'll tell you why. Because that, that Thanksgiving, she called her, her mother, her family, uh, and told them that she's bringing a, a friend. She has a boyfriend now. And the family asked, oh, you have a boyfriend? Wow, that's wonderful. We're glad to hear that. We've never, you never before were so excited about having a boyfriend. Uh, who, who, what is his name? So she told them my name, Credo Sinyangwe. It sounded foreign, right? <laughs> so... Uh, the parents said, where is he from? Is he from Africa or somewhere? Uh, Lisa said, yes. Then that, that was the end of the discussion. Hmm. So that's Thanksgiving. I didn't get to meet them. See, they were not part of this family I'm talking about. Hmm. Immediately, they, they, they said, I was a member of that family. So that part essentially died then. It was totally excluded. And what they tried to do from there on was is to try to convince their daughter to leave me. I mean, this has been going on for decades. They've been trying very hard. Why? Because her mother, <laughs> her mother and father were both Jewish. But her mother <laughs> is from Poland originally, her father from Austria. So they are Jewish, Austrian, and Polish. But her mother specifically was in the Holocaust. So she went through a very tough time as a young lady during Hitler time. So she comes from that background and very, very conservative Jewish, not religious Jewish, but very Jewish and wants to keep it that way, that way, that type of uh, people. So for her, all she saw me was a black guy. The rest of me didn't register. Whereas for Lisa, what she, showed, she, she saw was a complete human being yeah. that she can relate to. So our parents were foreign from that time onwards. They were foreigner. I wasn't the foreigner. Her parents were foreigner. Right. They were foreign to her. Wow. Yeah. So, so you and Lisa, from about as different worlds as you possibly could be, even different religious worlds, let alone yes. ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic, national, and so forth. Right? I mean, incredible. Find each other and, yes. and just like that. You're, all that you're, didn't matter. All right. it matters is that yes. me as a human being, as a person, and her as a human being, a person, the rest were material. Amen. Amen to yeah. that. And, and all that matters is the love we had for each other because it was really genuine. Very, very genuine. Uh, it could overcome any end, which again reminded me of the culture that I already experienced, especially with uh, Mama Nick and son, because I, 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 I lived with them longer. And then for a short period with hers, short period with, with Alistair. So all those were unique in their own ways, but they all added up. And it, it, it became clear to her. And it became clear to me when I met her that she was of that type. So whatever her family was saying or her friends, whatever, it didn't matter to us. In fact, what happened then is that... <laughs> In 1981, I got my first real job after graduating in 1979 from business school. I had little jobs here and there. It was very difficult to find meaningful work because of the way the U.S. job market is, including a person like hers with the bank of, um, with Pennsylvania Bank. 
He said, give me the resume, your resume. I'll take it personally to the head of Pennsylvania Bank, which kept his money to try to find work for me. Because every time I applied, I couldn't get any job anywhere. I applied, uh, by a young belief, everywhere. But every time came negative, negative, ne- negative. Later, I came to find that if your name was in a common name, very often they don't even read your resume. So that's one. And then you have this black, white issue. That's another, another elimination. And a lot of elimination, not what you're capable of doing. So we still have a long way to go in the job market, especially in the hotel industry, especially in the hotel industry. It's very, very difficult to get a management job. But if you want housekeeping or landscaping, oh, they're looking for you. But management is like reserved for others, not for you. And I, it came to prove itself out later on when I got a job with Disney. The only place they could place me was housekeeping. After all these years of experience. Why? Because that's where people like me work. That's where, uh, you know, people spoke Spanish and I speak Spanish or other languages worked. You'd think it would be an asset to be in the front of the house. No, you're just at the back of the house. Which then you bring other issues, you know, going back historically, also might have come to play in that. But let's fast forward to my first real job. We, we, we may have to skip over some of the professional success you've had, which has been really quite extraordinary. Just to touch on that, because I want to just skip forward to your, to your sons if we can. But touching on that, you know, you've, I know you've, through, you know, Cornell's invitation, you've, you opened up the first hotel's school of management in the Dominican Republic, that you were a very important part, I think even the, perhaps director, if that's the right term for, for tourism in, in Tanzania. I, I, I then was a managing director of tourism, uh, Tanzania Tourism Board. Mm-hmm. Yes, which was a presidential appointment. Yes. Yeah. Inc- incredible successes, but there's there's a particular reason I want to forward to your your two sons. They, in a fascinating way, continue sort of the, the magical life you've led. Right here are these these biracial young men of. Two incredible parents from very different worlds who are clearly yes. deeply fated to be family. The younger is on a, uh, it sounds like a wonderful scholarship to West Point playing soccer. Yes, yes, And yes, the older is, is. is, has graduated from Stanford University. Yes, political science. In, in political science, right. Yes, yes. And he has a particular gift for, for numbers and statistics. He does, he does, he, he does. He's, uh, from early on, he was always like the brightest kid you'll ever beat. He, he gets into whatever stuff by himself, and then he develops it to the finest degree. In other words, after he has dealt with it, you cannot improve on it. I still remember early days when his little boy, he would read a book about astronomy and then write about it. If you pick up a book by a professor of astronomy today and read, you wouldn't go beyond what uh, this little kid wrote. Even then, it's just, it's just it's so, so uniquely gifted. He's very, very gifted. And after his political science uh, career degree and working with an organization for a while in uh, California, he took it for himself to get into, into activism. 
He himself, he just, from nowhere, he decided this is what he wants to do. You can imagine of all the things that this kid could have done, why did he pick this? Sometimes you wonder, you ask yourself, why of all the subjects, this is what he wanted to do? And you can see the impact he's making in it. He's unbelievable impact with the things he's doing. Nobody, no, nobody comes anywhere near him. He gets into it. He gets so deep into it, like he's, he searches to the, to the depth of knowledge. He goes into the depth of knowledge. He brings things out that we can all benefit. That's the gift he has. Well, a couple of great things to, to mention here at the end. Um, his name is, is Sam, but your nickname yes. for him, because his middle name is Nicholas, is Sam Nick. And he was named for yes. Sam and Nicky. Yes, yes, yes exactly. Exactly. We wanted it to continue to live. Yes. To live on. Yes. Um, but I've known of Sam Nick since he was born because Sam and Nikki of your life story are my parents. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, well, you see. <laughs> so you and I have known each other since I was born. <laughs> yes, yes. A, a long time ago. Yes. A long time ago. Credo has been sort of the uh, the parallel brother, the, the, uh, the one before me in our family all these years. Yes. Well, thank you. Definitely. And... Uh, Always been, uh, and your dad is, uh, and mama have always been special, unique. Uh, I'm the gift of their, of their work. Look at it, look at it, look at it that way. They've always wanted this for me, and uh, here I am. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be in the United States of America, no matter what. Right, or with yeah, Lisa, I'm, I'm or here. or producing these incredible sons, the the second of which is still has yet to really show the world what he can can do, and the and the first is is doing things that I think are the in themselves remarkable areas of change for the planet, uh, especially in this culture that needs it so much. It, it's exciting how you can see what's going on in politics right now, and how he whatever he's doing is, is so relevant. Yes. Like he's right there center, you know? Yes, he is. Yeah, he it's is incredible. Right in the middle. incredible. But yeah, he's, he's incredible. also in many ways a full circle story. I mean, you are yourself a, a almost miraculous story of, of uniting of worlds. Just, you know, so many synchronicities, such generosity, but a generosity that is all coming back to you, having flowed from your original generosity and offering this young obnoxious kid who introduces himself with a kick to your side, you give him one of the last hooks you have to give him a chance to fish. And all this generosity in so many ways has come from the English you developed with him and the friendship and the familiarity that then lets you go on to meet so many more families and join them. It's also fascinating to me that, that your career took you to a place where working in the hotel industry in many ways, like you were doing the very advanced version of what you were doing as a kid in bringing in, you know, foods for, for hotels. You developed a whole <laughs> trucking network and a business around that. And uh, so it's, it's just amazing to see, again, the full circle way your life seems to work. I know. It's, it's, it's in a strange way, it's like it's all there. You know, in a way, it's all there is, is how we access it or how we somehow it's in a, in a place where we can reach it or take advantage of. And as I was, uh, as a remarkable finding uh, in later years is that that little boy then who left, I met him later. 
by a very strange coincidence again. Incredible. Through my son, who made it possible. My son found him through Facebook. Remember, this is 1962 when he left. And now we are talking like 2010, 2011. Wow. That's when I found him again through Sam. Wow. Through Facebook. And we called him. He's in England. And guess what he's doing? He's still fishing. Is that unbelievable? But not just for fun. If I remember right, he's a chef. He's a chef, professional chef, but he, he, buy, he fishes and then sells some of the fish like I used to do and buys more fish from other fishermen and distributes the fish to restaurants and hotels there in Suffolk, England, where we, we met, where we met with him and uh, spent a couple of nights with him there in Suffolk, England. It was so remarkable. And it's, again, when we saw him this time, it was as if we never left. Ah. It was the same. I'll give an example. i give an example. So we go, we go in for breakfast. And he says, oh, I don't feel like breakfast. I had some coffee or something. So I buy something and it's very big. So I say, well, you have half? So he has half. He has half and I have half. <laughs> uh, can you imagine? It's, it's, it's incredible. Incredible. As you can see by coincidence that evening uh, in the picture, I'm wearing Cornell red, and he has a red, uh, he's a red uh, sweater on. Again, very, very strange. We didn't talk about it. That's amazing. Now I give you, I give another example. In in in, in San Paolo, we traveled to Charlottesville. Charlotte, I think. Well, is it Charlotte or Charlottesville? Oh, Charlottesville, with, Virginia. With with, uh, with Sam. Uh huh. Yeah, Virginia. Charlottesville. Yeah. So we traveled there. Yeah, and then the next morning we have to do some stuff. So I walk out, I've I worn some shoes, and Sam has worn the same shoes that I'm wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so my kids say, did you guys uh, communicate? Or? I said, no, no, it just happens. <laughs> yes, Sam. So this, you go. these are strange things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're strange things in life. We will we will include that incredible picture of you and Alistair in uh, in the show notes for this this show. Um, the the two of you as 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 uh, adults fifty years later holding a picture of the two of you as kids. Yes, it's and a I have a picture. I think of when when I met you. I met Nick Sam, Sam and Mama Nikki, and when they took me home with all the goodies they gave me that that uh, initial meeting. With their green Volkswagen, oh, wow. uh, and the picture. If you want, I, I think I have it somewhere. If I find it, I'll send it to you, so you can have that. Thank you, Credo. backdrop. Thank and, you, Credo. Uh, I think I have a picture. I have a picture of the Haas somewhere. I can send that too, so you have you have Haas, and I think I have a picture of Dora Hillman too. So if if I find them, I'll send them to you, so you can have them in the context of all these people that have um, made my life, changed my life forever. And here I am speaking with you. I'm very proud of, of you and what you're accomplishing too. And because uh, I still remember when you're a little boy running around <laughs> and, and here you're interviewing me. The first interview that I've really had is you. How about that? It is not anybody else in the world. How about that? It, it's you. So well, thank you so much oh, for Kredo, making thank this you. possible. And uh, all the best to you and family. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll get together at some point. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, we, we still have time in this livingness. We'll get together either here or there or in Washington, wherever, you know, we'll, we'll see you. 
and we, are, we should be seeing your dad uh, at some point, some point in the near future. We, we go there a lot to Washington and visit with them, and uh, we have a, a great time again uh, with them. Like again, we never left. My huge thanks for your time today, Credo. Much love to your whole family. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much.